Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. More information about First Baptist Church can be found at www.fbcalamo.com. All right, well, as our kids uh, head back to Kids Church and to the Fellowship Hall with Miss Rhonda, uh, let me invite you to take your Bible and go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now, um, this, is the, this is the third week in our, our Genesis series. So for the last two, um, we, we've talked about creation. And we, we saw that, that God is the author of creation. He's the designer. Uh, that means that, that he gets to set the rules. And we saw that um, in Genesis 1, when, when all was said and done, God looked at everything that he had done and said it was very good. And then last week, we looked... Uh, at the creation of Adam and Eve, uh, we learned about God's plan for our relationship with Him. We looked at God's plan for our relationships uh, with one another. We, we even looked at God's plan for marriage. Again, as, as the author, God, God gets to, to set the rules. He gets to set the parameters for what marriage is, what it should be. Um, now, over the last two weeks, what we saw was really God's perfect plan in action. And we saw that everything went well. There was no, uh, no strife between uh, the spouses. We saw there was no separation between God and, and his people. And then today, everything changes. Well, I mean, at least in the passage before us. The, 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 everything changed like thousands of years ago, but you know what I'm saying. Like in the, in the passage before us, uh, everything changes. And, and what we're going to see this morning is, is, is why Genesis 3 is so important for us to understand the world around us. Because I think universally, throughout human history, people have looked at the world, and, and regardless of what answers they came to uh, about why the world is the way it is, or, or what the answer is, um, everyone has agreed that something is wrong. Something's out of sorts. Now, as I said, the the answers to that question, to the question of what's wrong with the world, will vary. Uh, but almost no one would look at the world around us and say, "I think everything's going great. I don't think there are any issues." Right? Um, this is the re- this is the very reason I would say that we have governments. Right? That we have to have things like police forces to to stop or to try to heal what's broken. And this morning. We're going to find in, in Genesis 3 the, the ultimate answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? And we'll, we'll look at some of the fallout of that. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis 3, and let's stand as we read the word the Lord's given to us. We're going to read all of chapter 3 uh, this morning. The word of the Lord says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the, but, yeah, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband 
who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are more cursed than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And even for this disturbing passage before us as we see everything going wrong Will you open our eyes to the reality of the fallen world around us? And yet, will you still remind us of your grace, of your mercy, and of your forgiveness? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now, now what we're going to see this this morning are really three things. And I I don't have these. uh, All we have is the title slide this morning. So, I mean, if you're a note taker, um, you you can always jot some some stuff down. But uh, mostly, I just wanted us to, to examine this passage Together, I don't have a whole lot of like supporting verses. Um, we have a couple that we'll go through, but but for the most part, I, I really just wanted to break this this passage down and, and for us to wrap our heads around what on earth is happening here, when when everything was so good and so right, and suddenly it all goes so wrong so quickly. Now we're told here, the first thing that I want us to look at are really the, the, the contours of the fall. Just kind of the, 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 the outline of what's happening here. And we're, we're introduced right off the bat to the serpent. And we're told that he was the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And we see this serpent speaking. Which for us is 
unusual, right? I mean, most of the time, animals don't talk to us, right? If, if an animal talks to you, uh, th- there's professionals for that, okay? So I, w- I, would, I would highly encourage you to go, go uh, see someone about that. Um, but, but while this is unusual to us, at least in the, in the, the sense of the garden, this, this doesn't seem to strike Eve as all that unusual. Maybe, maybe she, she stopped and talked with the serpent because um, maybe it was unusual. Maybe, maybe she stopped just to talk and have, have a conversation with this strange thing that was happening. We, we don't know. What we do see here, though, is, is that the serpent begins to subvert God's commands. Now, we understand that this, is, that this serpent um, is, is Satan. Satan is indwelling this, this serpent and talking to Eve and leading her astray. And we, we know that not because of anything that, that Moses tells us here in, in Genesis as he's writing down this account. Uh, we actually find that out in the book of Revelation. Uh, a couple of places there in verse 12, 9. In chapter 12, verse 9, and chapter 20, verse 2, and in both of those passages in Revelation, the, the serpent is identified for us as Satan. Um, so that's not just something that we interject here. The Bible actually does, does later describe that for us, that the, that the serpent is indwelled by Satan. And, and yet look at his strategy. He doesn't come right out and call God a liar. He, he doesn't approach Eve and say, hey, this is what you should do. You shouldn't listen to God anymore, and, and you should listen to me instead. He's much more subversive in the way that he approaches her, and, and he approaches her with a question, if you notice that. Did God really say? If you look around at our culture today, is, is this not still the same strategy that, that Satan uses to to, to lead people away from what God has commanded. Did God really say? Does the Bible actually say that you can't do this or that you have to do this? Can you name for me the chapter and the verse? Did God really say? And, and then not only does he question God's command, but he actually twists God's command. So did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Man, that... That, that God that you serve, that God that created you, it's kind of harsh, isn't he? Did, did he really tell you that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And that's where things begin, by, by Satan questioning God's commands. Now Eve here has an opportunity to, to respond and set the serpent straight. And yet look what she does. In, in her response... She expands on the command that God has given to her, to her and Adam. In verses 2 and 3, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, which is true. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God says, You must not eat it, which is true, or touch it, which is not true, or you will die. Now, what God actually said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 17, in giving this command, is he says, you must not eat from the tree, period. What we see Eve doing is actually expanding God's command. Now, 
Now, certainly we create issues when we try to subvert God's commands like Satan is doing. But, but listen to me. We also create issues when we try to expand God's commands farther than the Bible would go. The Bible allows for a great deal of freedom within the commands that he's given to us. And if you see here, the way that, that Eve responds, she, she makes God say something that he did not, in fact, say. And that opens up the, the serpent then, no, you, to, to respond. Verse 4, no, you will not die. There he is again, countering God's commands. The woman said to the serpent, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's another trick that Satan still uses. And that's simply telling the woman, listen, God's holding out on you. There is something that he's not telling you. There is some joy, there's some beauty, there's some pleasure here that he doesn't want you to know about. Now at this point, as, as you may see there, the woman has a choice. What will she do? What will she believe? I think we know the answer to that. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. Man, you know, that, that's, that's really a pretty tree. That it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Surely, surely something that pretty, surely something that looked that good couldn't be bad for us, right? So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Now, now we shift from Eve to Adam. And get this, we're told he was with her. Now, now keep in mind that God, that God has given Adam the responsibility of caring for the rest of creation. Eve was created from Adam's side, to uh, specifically created as, as a helper suitable for him. They were designed for one another, and yet Adam has the responsibility to protect his family. In this case, it, it, the only family that he has is his wife. And if, in fact, he's with her as she's talking with the serpent, notice that he never steps in and says, hang on, that's, that's not what God said. Let me clarify what God actually said. He never steps in and says, no, our family's not doing this. What we do know is that at some point, Adam was given the fruit by Eve, and he ate it. And isn't it interesting, I, at, least, at least I found that really interesting here, that Adam never speaks in this whole account. As one commentator said, and I really like this, he said, Even listened to, Eve listened to the serpent, Adam listened to Eve, and no one listened to God. Now, I, I have an inquiring mind, so I'm, I've always been kind of curious, what would have happened if, if, if Adam had said, no, I'm not eating that? He said, said if he had responded, what have you done? No, this is not what we're going to do. If he had, if he had stepped in and said, no, neither one of us are, are taking part in this. Ultimately, of course, we don't know because that's simply not what happened. Adam had a choice as well, and he chose to sin just as his wife 
have done. Now, we see here, of course, that they didn't immediately die. But as we'll see later on, death enters the picture at this very moment. And we see the consequences uh, really before God even begins to explain the consequences. So in verse 8, we see the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin broke fellowship. It broke fellowship between husband and wife as they're covering themselves from each other in verse 7. So the eyes were open and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together. And then verse 8, they hide themselves from God. Now, by the way, sin also makes us stupid, okay? Here's, here's the, the sovereign, holy creator of the universe, and Adam and Eve go hide behind some trees. Think it's a perfect plan. And really all I can imagine, have you ever tried to play hide-and-seek with like a two-year-old? Go hide. They like run to a corner and like cover their face because for for some reason, right, little kids think, well, if I can't see you, you can't see me. That's kind of how I picture Adam and Eve here, right? Like going and hiding in a bush. Don't worry. He'll never find us here. Found the perfect hiding spot. God. And I also find it interesting that God doesn't just call them out right right off the bat, Right? Now, he lets them know that they know, and I think any parent uh, will, will, or any, any child who's ever been caught by their parents will, will know what this is like, right? Where your parents are asking questions and you know they know. They're, they're trying to see if, if you're going to fess up or, or whether or not we've got to, like, you know, dig it out of you. Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam's response shows this broken fellowship with God. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. For the first time, mankind was afraid of encountering God. And as we know, it wouldn't be the last time. In fact, that becomes a pattern where mankind is afraid of encountering God. So so we see that sin leads to broken fellowship, right? As I said, sin leads to stupidity. But sin also leads to blaming others. So verse 11, right? Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Again, God absolutely knows what's happened. He's wanting these folks to, to fess up to what they've done. The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me. Now, this is an interesting statement, isn't it? That woman, by the way, that you gave to me. Listen, I was just here naming cows and and, and hanging out with monkeys, and life was good. And then you decided that it wasn't good for me to be alone. And, and God suddenly point, or Adam points the finger not just at Eve and saying, she deceived me, but ultimately he points the finger at God and says, you gave her to me, right? 
never, he never says, and again, I'm curious what would have happened here. If, if Adam would have said, we blew it, we, we messed up. It's an interesting thought. I have no idea. That's not what happened. And I find it also really interesting that God doesn't, like, call Adam out and say, are you serious right now? He, he, he goes with it, right? I mean, he, okay. Turns to Eve, what have you done? What is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And again, a commentator pointed out that when, when God begins asking questions, Adam immediately looks at Eve, Eve immediately looks at the serpent, and no one is looking to God. No one's asking him, what do we do? It's all, well, you see, it's not really my fault because they, they, they gave it to me. And then we get into the, to the consequences. God begins with the serpent. Verse 14, so, so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are more cursed than any livestock, more than any wild animal, You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. So we see here that there will be hostility between the serpent and the woman. And then in verse 15, as God's beginning to give out the the punishments, the consequences, he's, he's explaining what the fallout from all this is, we actually have the first promise of the Messiah who will come and set right what was just broken. Verse 15, I'll put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And my, my, my favorite translation of this verse in, in 15 actually says, uh, he will crush your head. I think that um, illustrates a little bit more what he's saying there. He's saying, So he's telling the serpent, listen, you're going to inflict some damage upon this world. You will strike this woman's offspring's heel. Now, I've never been bitten by a snake on the heel. I'll take somebody else's word and and, and believe that that probably doesn't feel good, right? It's going to hurt. And do we not see Satan, in fact, inflicting pain and suffering upon our world? And yet there's the hope of one who will crush his head. We see the promise of the Messiah. Then he turns to the woman. And in one verse, he he lays out this punishment. I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with, with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And suddenly one of the, one of the great blessings that, that belongs to women to, to bear children becomes a painful burden. And we see that, that the strife between the husband and wife is, will now be a constant thing. And then we get to the, the, the consequences for the man. And this is, it's described in most detail and it's given more space than either the serpent or the man. Now, now listen, I'm not about to say the man's punishment is more severe because um, I've never given birth, and I'm not about to make uh, that statement. 
but, but it is laid out as the most significant of the consequences. This is what he says. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you do not eat from it, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. So suddenly this work that was designed to be a blessing has become a burden. And, and, and the ground that would produce the, the life-giving food for the man and his family will now war against the man's efforts. And this is where work becomes laborious, where, where work becomes a burden rather than the, the blessing that God has designed it to be. As we talked about last week, work itself is not a, a curse of the fall, right? God did not tell Adam, well, since you've done this, now you have to go to work. Work was built into uh, the original design of, of creation, but it becomes a burden after the fall. Now, now when it talks about the, the ground producing thorns and thistles, um, I, I grew up, my, my dad was a cotton farmer, so every summer I got to experience this firsthand about the, the ground fighting against us, right? So every morning, Dad would put me on a four-wheel. Thankfully, I never had to just go. Anybody here, like, have to just go, like, hoe a field when you were a kid? Anybody have that blessing? Billy? Yeah, we got a couple, right? I never had to do that. We had four-wheelers. Praise the Lord, right? But, but it was, uh, you know, middle of July, 105 degrees. Go, go, go drive through the field. And you know what we discovered? That, that no matter how much you pulled weeds out of the ground or sprayed to kill them, they always came back. Discovering that with my, with my yard right now, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm desperately trying to get grass, and by desperately, I mean now that it's monsoon season, I'm letting it rain on my yard and, and hoping that grass comes up. And, but, but you know what's interesting? Come February, my yard will be green, but it'll be green for all the wrong reasons. And I will not have watered it, I will not have touched it, the, these, these weeds will just spring to life. The ground, God says, will war against the man. And creation that God designed to serve us, for us to, to care for and for it to be a joy, is cursed and begins fighting back. Now, at this point, all seems lost, and I'm so glad that, that this isn't where chapter 3 ends, because this is not an, a, a good moment. Everything's gone wrong. God, God just decreed to the wife, listen, you and your husband are going to fight. I'm going to increase your, your labor and childbearing. Your, your, your husband's going to be out in the field all day. He's going to come home. He's going to be grumpy, and, and, and things, things are not going to go well, right? And then... We get to verses 20 through 24, the, the last of this chapter, and we see that God extends grace even in the middle of the fall. Verse 20 says, the, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. In verse 21, this, this is incredible. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife 
and he clothed them. Now, even in the middle of their sin, God still has grace on them. He shows them grace. He clothes them. Where before the, the, the man and woman, we were kind of given this picture that they hastily sewed some leaves together to cover themselves. We see here that God took great care in fashioning clothes for them. But we also see the cost of sin here. Because in order for clothing to be made from skins, that, mean, that means that there had to be blood spilled. We see this truth that even in Genesis 3, the wages of sin is death. There was a sacrifice made to cover the sin of the man and the woman. And he clothed them. Don't miss the beauty of that phrase. God could have wiped them out at that point. Could have said, right now, right, right here, we're not, we're not doing this. I'm starting over. But he doesn't. He took care of the people he created, even though they were imperfect. He showed great care in doing so. Then in verse 22, we're told, uh, the Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, now this may seem cruel at first that, that God would ban them, banish them from the Garden of Eden because it was still a place of unbelievable beauty. It was still a place that even in their fallen state was, as, I believe, as close to perfect as anything else on earth. And yet, we're told here that with access to the Tree of Life, the man and woman would have been able to live forever. God told them that when you eat from the tree, you will surely die. So he removes them from the tree of life. Meaning that physical death, while not instantaneous, was now an assured thing. It was a reality that they would face. But also, by removing them from the garden... God actually shows great mercy because, as I said, with the tree of life, they would have been able to live forever, but they would, they would have lived forever in this fallen state of arguing with one another, feel, feeling strife between one another, of being separated from God because of their sin. And God removes them from the tree of life, allows them to experience physical death with the hope that one day there will be a renewed fellowship with him and with one another. See, we understand this as believers. That's why we, we understand that while, while physical death in this life is, is a painful thing for us, we, we approach that with hope because we know that's not the end. Now imagine living in a place where you had access to the tree of life and, and you were constantly, you are able to live forever, but just like this. Haven't we been, as a, as a people, we've almost been obsessed with, with beauty, right? And with, with youth. People searching through, for the, through centuries for the, the fountain of youth. Trying to find some way to reverse this 
aging process. And I think what we need to understand is that, that physical death for us as believers is a blessing. Right? It means that, that there's coming a day where you won't wake up in the morning and go, what did I do? That these earthen vessels, as Paul describes them, that are they're slowly deteriorating will one day be freed from those. Now, as we wrap up, this is, this is one of the saddest passages in Scripture, right? There's no getting around it. I mean, this is, this is disaster. Man, man and the, the man and the woman choose their own way instead of God's way. And really, throughout the rest of Genesis, things don't get any better. If, if it seems like they, they can't get worse, just hang on. It doesn't take long. Things devolve quickly. But, but this passage does provide us with an important understanding of the, the fallen nature of our world, right? It helps us to understand why we deal with things like hurricanes and with shootings, with physical pain. We, we deal with those because our world is fundamentally broken. And, and while, the, while I believe we would say the image of God is still present in our nature, that that sin could not completely destroy that, it, it marred it. But we also understand this is not the way God designed our world to operate. That's why Genesis 1 and 2 are so important, because they, they, they show us the way God designed our world to operate. And, and chapter 3 shows us why things don't operate that way. But the Bible will also tell us that God has a much better plan for us. And, and that promise in chapter 3, verse 15, assures us, just as it assured Adam and Eve, that one day the head of the serpent would be crushed. Now, in reality, that happened 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem when God sent his only son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that Adam and that you and I failed to live. And he sent Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice, to, to put the power of death to death once for all. And so while the head of the snake has been crushed, he's still thrashing around, causing some damage. But his fate is sealed. And the best news of all, and we, we see this in, at the end of Genesis 3, is that God didn't wait for us to get our act together. He, he didn't tell Adam and Eve, listen, y'all gotta, y'all gotta figure this thing out. And then I'll figure out what I'm going to do with you. No, we're told that he took great care to clothe them even in the middle of their sin. And he made the way for reconciliation. Romans 5.8 tells us that God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the promise that comes out of this passage. But we can understand we live in a fallen world. We we ourselves have fallen natures that will war against who God is, against God's plan for us. And yet the promise is that even as we're fighting against God, he sent Jesus to reconcile us to himself. And if we will turn from our sin and trust in Jesus we can experience that renewed life now. We can experience that restoration to Christ with the hope that one day everything will be set right. And so as we wrap up this morning, I just, I'm wondering, have you trusted in Christ? 
Have you trusted in him as the one who crushed the head of the serpent? The one who came to pay the way for your sin and for my sin? Have you followed him in believer's baptism? Making public what what he's already done in your heart, saying, yes, I'm a follower of Christ. I've been buried with Christ in baptism, and I've been raised to walk in a new life. Maybe you're here this morning, you're just simply looking for a a church and a group of believers to come alongside and and follow Christ together. We we believe that's what church membership is all about, just uh, joining, saying, I want to join with this group of believers to, to pursue Christ together. I'd love to visit with you a little bit more about that. We're going to sing a, a song of invitation. And if you're here this morning, you'd say, I've never, never turned from my sin. I've never asked Christ to be my Lord and Savior. To, let, me, let, me, let me invite you to do that today. To have the assurance that what's broken in the world might be set right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for this passage. I thank you, even in the disaster that we see in Genesis 3, that your grace is all over this passage. Thank you for the promise that that one day the power of the the serpent, the power of Satan would be destroyed. We can point to that moment in history and say this is when the, the serpent's head was crushed. We know that now he is powerless Help us to understand that Genesis 3 is why our world does not operate the way you designed it to operate. It's why everything seems broken. And yet we know there's a promise that one day everything that's broken is going to be set right. It's going to be healed. Will you help us as followers of Christ to be, as, as Paul says, agents of reconciliation, that we might be about undoing injustices, setting right what was broken. Help us to understand how to do that. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. We are located at 1100 Michigan Avenue in Alamogordo, New Mexico. We meet on Sundays for small groups at 9 a.m. and worship at 1030. If you have more questions, please email office at fbcalamo.com or call 575-437-5510. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.